to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Ross H. McKenzie is a helicopter pilot, published author, and retired Navy man. He also happens to be Paul's brother-in-law. During his 20-year U.S. Navy career, he interdicted drug shipments in the Caribbean and cruised in the Persian Gulf as a Seahawk helicopter pilot. His published works include Brief Points, an almanac for parents and friends of U.S. Navy midshipmen, My Sailor Dad, and My Soldier Dad. My Sailor Dad and My Soldier Dad are part of the Patriot Kids book series and the Hero Kids Project aimed at helping service member families understand military service and all that comes with it. To learn more, please visit HeroKidsBookProject.org. Ross is married to his wife of 25 years, Elizabeth Gilman McKenzie. They have two wonderful teenage sons, Stuart and Cameron. Here's Ross. Ross, welcome. Ross McKenzie uh, is most known for being uh, my brother-in-law. His family is uh, joining us. Uh, My nephew, his son, Cameron, his second oldest, and then uh, his oldest off the mic, but Stuart is in the room. Of course, my kids are in the room, uh, Lindsay and Zach. Daniel, of course, as always, is here doing his thing. Ross and I uh, and the rest of us are at the river. We are just chilling out and doing a super relaxed podcast learning about Ross McKenzie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Right on. So uh, so you're a pilot right now. Um, and, 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 and briefly, you flew helicopters for the Navy, and, and now you fly commercial airlines. But let's rewind all the way back to, you know, when did flying hit your radar? Like, when did you decide that you, you liked flying and you wanted to be a pilot? Uh, right, so I'm one of those kids who was really fortunate to figure out what he wanted to do when he grew up uh, at a pretty young age. Um, if my parents were here, they'd, they'd tell a story about how when I was too young to remember, I was sitting on someone's shoulders at a Blue Angels show and, you know, the jets go zorching by and um, that, that was what did it. And I disagree. I happened to be um, about seven years old when a movie called Star Wars came out uh, in the late 70s, and that's what did it for me. I'm, I was clearly going to be an X-Wing fighter pilot, which um, I think everyone else my age... Like may, Luke. You were going to be Luke. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Well, may, maybe Han Solo as well. Millennium Falcon was pretty tough, too, but yeah, I was going to be an X-Wing fighter uh, pilot, and it, uh, that's what really lit the fire. Yeah, Han Solo is probably more impressive because he didn't have, you know, the force. Right, exactly. He just a, <laughs> he's an aviator's aviator. He's a raw exactly. human. Good first mate in Chewbacca as well. So, uh, yeah, that's what did it. And then um, sort of followed that dream and passion through um, my childhood. And then when I was old enough uh, to do anything about it, I went to my parents and said, hey, I think I'd really like to, to try this flying thing for real. And... My my folks decided to encourage that with a few conditions to make sure that I was really serious about it. They said, "Sure, we can we can help you support this um, dream of yours, but it's really going to be on you because we want to make sure that um, it's something that you want to do." So um, financially, it was on my shoulders, and so I I was like, "Not intimidated, okay? Hey, let's uh, try to find a job where I can make the most money in the shortest amount of time." and save up for this. And so that's what I did, work construction in uh, the Virginia summers and made a lot of money. And then the summer before my senior year of high school, uh, I, I didn't have a job and I just flew and made it all the way through my private pilot license. And so I had that. Uh, and then 
off to college and um, was fortunate to end up flying for the Navy. Wow. So you're a pretty enterprising uh, high school. I don't know very many high schoolers that are gung-ho on getting a pilot's license and, and flying. Uh, did you see any other kids your age doing that? There were not too many. I flew out of Hanover Airport, and at the time there was a guy called uh, Fuzzo who spelled his name with three Zs. Uh, he did the morning traffic in Richmond. I don't know if Paul remembers. Ba- he was, vaguely. He vaguely was uh, f- uh, Fuzzo, or f- yeah, Fuzzo, and he would say, it's F-U-Z-Z-Z-O, but the middle Z is silent. Um, <laughs> now I remember. Yeah, yeah. exactly, the little catchphrase. <laughs> so I flew out of Hanover Airport, and um, there were a few other kids there, but yeah, not a whole lot. Nice. So, you know, when I think flying, I think Air Force, which I know that's a fallacy because every branch has, uh, I guess, aviation involved. So um, did you did you consider the, the Air Force? Uh, and, and how did the Navy end up being where you ended up? Great question. So, yeah, I was um, I just really wanted to fly and didn't see much of a differentiation between the, the services uh, until we started spending a lot of time with a great family friend called Paul Galani, who was... Uh, a fighter pilot in Vietnam, unfortunately shot down and spent some time in jail in Hanoi. But um, sometimes six and a half years. Right. Yeah. When he came back uh, from Vietnam, he had a job at the Naval Academy, and so our family would go up and visit. Uh, we call him Uncle Paul, and um, we'd go to a couple football games. And the Naval Academy really sort of got into our family DNA, even though we didn't. Our family, um, my dad, didn't have any military service. Um, so it got into our family's DNA. My brother also went to Naval Academy, and talking to Uncle Paul as well really sort of steered me toward the Navy uh, as a community, but also as a as a branch of service. Mm. And where's uh where's Uncle Paul now? He is still in Richmond. He's uh, he's living in the same uh, Westminster Canterbury where my folks are, and um, yeah, still still after it. It's good. That's amazing. When was the last time you saw Paul? Uh, it's been a, it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Paul's a, Paul's a great man. I've met him. He's, he's got a great sense of humor. For somebody who went through what he went through, uh, six and a half years away from his wife, I, I don't remember right. if he has, had kids at the time or not. No, I had kids when he came back, and that relationship started. Uh, my dad was a newspaper editor in Richmond, and um, he became friends with Paul's wife while Paul was in jail uh, in Vietnam. Um, as a platform, my dad's editorial page was very kind to the wives of POWs, um, Phyllis Galani, Sybil Stockdale, and others, and uh, that's how the relationship really rekindled, and then, or began, I should say, and then when Paul came back, that friendship just really took off. Mm. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Yeah. Super great guy to be introduced to at a pretty young age. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question. Yeah. Cool. So did you enjoy the Naval Academy? Oh, every minute. You know, everyone (laughs) has a... No, I I was fortunate... um, to be uh, an athlete there. Uh, I was a rower as um, when I came in, and then for the first three years I had an injury where I, I couldn't row my senior year, but um, that really was a, sort of, a for me, a lifesaver. I had a great niche of friends, a great community um, within the larger community of the Naval Academy, and um, my personality was not one that sort of jived super well with the structure of the Naval Academy, which is fine. There's plenty of people who buy into it, and there's some people who don't, and I was one of the people who don't, but it just made it for some tough days, long days, but um, it, was, uh, it was a nice vehicle. The adage that, uh, that some people use is the Naval Academy is a great place 
to be from, it's not really a very great place to be. Uh, well, what sport did you play? I was a rower, was so rower. crew. Oh, yeah, 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 my bad. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Um, and you say you enjoy every minute of it. Uh, that was tongue-in-cheek. That was right. <laughs> so, you know, what, what are some of the experiences that maybe, you know, it wasn't the most enjoyable? Like, I'm guessing your first year there. I don't know. I heard about the rat line last week. From VMI. From VMI. Right. I'm wondering if there's, like, a similar kind of concept. There is. So the Naval Academy is populated with a lot of kids who are very used to getting what they want uh, based on academics or athletic prowess. And so they bring all these um, kids in and knock them all down to square one and remind them that they all are essentially the same and then build them up together. And that's the a lot of the rationale behind the what we call plebe year, uh, plebe summer, you get your head shaved and, and bring your uh, modesty down a few pegs mm-hmm. um so yeah that was uh physically pretty challenging um intellectually pretty challenging just to get through some of those uh i guess just cha- like yeah. rites of passage exactly exactly yeah. so um once you make it through the summer then you have the academics on top of that mm. which are uh top shelf and and very challenging uh, for a kid who was a more of a jock than a a studious guy um it was it was rough and so you know whether it was being told to do things just because those are the those are the rules and that's what we do as a plebe or um you know based on tradition some of the stuff didn't make sense to me that I would want to push back on and that was that was sometimes created some challenges did you put actually push back or was it more mental anguish just I, I think the latter yeah. no more mental anguish and then once you're through the plebe year then you're then you're into your major classes, you're into your um, different communities. And as I mentioned earlier, for me, to be able to have a sport to go sort of escape from all the professional uh, professionalism, professional nonsense, whatever moniker you want super to Super uptight on. just because we can be super exactly. uptight. Exactly. Mm-hmm. To go and go on a trip up to New England to one of these colleges that we would be rowing against and have a, a few opportunities to take a deep breath was very necessary. Right. Nice. It's got to be tough for the kids that didn't play a sport, right? Yeah, and they're they're folded in. Of course, there are uh, intramural sports that are there, and there's other opportunities for for you to find your community, whether it's um, club sports or um, you know one of the big ones is uh, football. If you're not on the Division One team, which of course is very rigorous, um, they have a 150s uh, weight football team that you could play against um, some other schools that have 150s. Like uh, 150 pounds? Correct, yeah. So, so almost like, like a wrestler. You're If you're not a big enough kid to be on the offensive line for a D1 school, mm-hmm. you're still able to play the game um, just against folks who are a little bit smaller. And it's still super competitive and, um, oh, and yeah. a lot of fun for those guys. So everyone sort of finds their niche and yeah. their community. And um, as I think some of your previous guests have mentioned at, at the – military academy just like the naval academy that it's broken into regiments and battalions and companies and without getting into the minutiae of what that is you you have a group of people who 
you go through the school with. And so oftentimes you can sort of connect to those folks and they're kind of your, your closest mates. Yeah, your, you your company. Right, exactly. Everybody's pretty darn tight inside yeah. of those, yeah. And sure. did they try to make sure you stayed with those people like after the academy or did most people kind of? No, it's sort of a blunderbuss after the academy because people are going into all different communities. Some people are going to the Marine Corps. Some people are going to the Navy. And then within those larger uh, services, you've got pilots and surface warfare officers and infantry officers. So it really just people scatter to the wind, and some folks stick together, obviously. But um, but oftentimes the, your company is a place to sort of hang out with on, on a reunion, if you will. <laughs> mm. so, so you ended up uh, being in the academics, certainly, which were rigorous. Uh, you ended up uh, rowing for the first three years. But you also majored in something that most uh, cats don't major in, going to the Naval Academy. Tell us about that and what that experience was like. Sure. So you have three groups of majors uh, at uh, the Naval Academy. At the time, that this may have changed, but the group one majors are the technical sciences, so uh, aerospace engineering, um, uh, electrical engineering, though that sort of level of technical thinking. The group two majors are the what they call the general sciences, um, you know, a chemistry, a mathematics, something like that. And then you have group three majors, which are only four majors, uh, English history, political science, and economics. Uh, and I was an English major. So I was in that, that group three uh, major. So I'm I'm a little bit strange because everyone who graduates from the Naval Academy uh, gets a Bachelor's of Science degree because of the core courses of technical courses that we need to take, electrical engineering, um, physics, what, what have you. But you're I majored in a non-technical uh, discipline, so I have a Bachelor's of Science uh, in English, which is a bit strange. Is the Naval Academy the only one that does that? You know, I'm not sure about the other uh, academies. I would imagine that there still is a sort of a STEM emphasis. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and again, this may have changed. This was a few, just a few years ago. But <laughs> I mean, like even history, well, history, maybe not, but political science and economics, those are pretty, I'd say, like established sciences. You know, history and English, I'm, surpri- I'm not surprised about history, but I am surprised a little bit about, about English uh, being like a, an offered major at a military academy. Yeah, well, my experience was, uh, I, I suppose, thus. I, there's a lot of thought behind the major process and a lot of the rationale behind the technical sciences, even the general sciences, is, well, we have to prepare these young men and women who are going to go off and be leaders in the Navy Marine Corps for the technologic, technological and technical challenges that they're going to face. So why would you need anyone with a liberal arts major or liberal arts background? My retort to that would be, well, what do you study in English and history? You really study more of the human condition. And all of these young men and women who are going to go off and lead the Navy Marine Corps are going to be, at the outset, leaders first. And who do you lead? Well, you lead humans. And so Mm -hmm. my thought process was, why not learn as much as I can about those individuals who I'm going to be in charge of um, so that I can have a better understanding of how they work, how they tick, what, what their challenges are, what their joys are, what makes them sort of operate. Yeah, like build the EQ, emotional intelligence, Absolutely. that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Mm. Um, that yeah. was not shared by a lot of people who were there. They're like, yeah, you're just weird and you wanted to do an easy major because you can read about stuff and there's no right or wrong answer. They, we actually refer to them as uh, affectionately, in my view, as bull majors because you can kind of bull your way through the answers rather than, well, in math, it's either right or wrong. There's, we're not going to have this bull conversation. Yeah, not, not a lot of gray in math. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So as an English major, you had a love of reading. Uh, you, I also know that you have a love of writing. 
Uh, were you published before you left the Naval Academy? No, no, not before. So when I graduated, um, there was a wait to go to uh, flight school, Navy flight school down in Pensacola. And so I needed to find a job as a commissioned officer uh, to sort of bridge that gap to be employed um, before I went to flight school. And I was fortunate enough to get a job there at the Naval Academy in the English department, uh, really just as a kind of um, crappy little jobs officer, if you will, in the department. You were an, you were an incident at the Naval Academy. I, exactly. Yeah. So I wasn't going to be teaching. I was. I even went to the department chair at the time, and I said, gosh, you know, I know we've had ensigns teach in the past. I would love to do that. And he sort of looked at me and nodded politely and said, <laughs> yeah, that's great. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> and so I was, oh, okay. At well, least for this 10-second conversation. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so t- a little bit of time passed, and it was a couple weeks before the semester started, and one of the tenured profs got tapped to go be part of the admissions committee which is a a pretty intensive job that lasts an entire year and so her this professor's course load had to be lightened by at least one section so he came back a little sheepishly and said hey ross we had this conversation earlier uh, would you like to be a a, a, a prof for the uh, young plebes I said, absolutely. He said, super. Well, today's Friday. By Monday, I need a syllabus and a book order list. And I was like, oh, wow, this just got really real. Yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah, he probably went straight to you because you, you went up and asked him. Yeah, well, that could have been. That could have been. Probably had you in his mind. Right. So I taught for just that one semester uh, before I went to flight school. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then I went to flight school, went off to do uh, my flying, which we'll circle back to. But Um, for my first shore tour where I'm not deploying as a helicopter pilot uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go back to the Naval Academy for a full three-year tour and teach and while I was back during that spell um, I did write a book and uh, it was a book about the Naval Academy called uh, Brief Points uh, which is sort of an almanac for parents and friends of Naval Academy midshipmen and the the premise essentially is they, the kids who apply oftentimes really don't know what it is that they're getting into. It's a completely different cult- culture, a completely different academic collegiate experience. Many of them really haven't even heard of the Navy or what the Navy does. And if you're a family from Montana, I mean, you have even less of an idea. So what has my daughter gotten herself into going to this technical college on the banks of the Chesapeake Bay, all the way out east, what are they doing? So the purpose of the book is to sort of pull the curtain back a bit on the entire experience, explain the basics of the academics, the athletics, the professionalism, the career paths of the myriad service selections that you can have as a graduate. That's sort of the first part of the book. The second part of the book is really a glossary of terms that some of which are unique to the Naval Academy, some of which are more broad and used in the Navy or the services. So when you get off the phone with your young midshipman and she says, Mom and Dad, I love you. I've got to run. I've got to come around with a real flamer second class and um, follow that. I got I got chow call. I really, I got to go. And you say, okay, I love you, honey. And then you hang up the phone and you say, what just happened? I don't know what any of those words mean. So you can sort of look up their meanings. And so at the time, nothing like this existed. The internet was in its infancy, and now a lot of that information is online. But that was mm. the general premise of the Yeah, book. not just parents and families, but I figure that'd be uh, really helpful for high schoolers, too, that are thinking about the, uh, the, different, the different academies. Right. And I think on, in, in general, I, th- I think high schoolers are expected to know way more than they do about 
the colleges that they're going to end up going to. And it can be tough to do that. So I think a book like that would be really helpful. Yeah. And I was fortunate. My, my dad, who's a newspaper man, career newspaper man, uh, who had two young sons went, who went to the Naval Academy, really got frustrated by the lack of information. And so he wrote the original brief points and it had a, a, a second printing where there were some modifications. And he really wasn't interested in doing a third edition. And so we had some conversations with Naval Institute Press, who are the guys who uh, published it right there in Annapolis, and uh, I was fortunate to get the contract and and did the additions. So. Was it blessed by the the Navy? Like, did you have to run it by the Navy so that they didn't think like, hey, you're publishing a bunch of you know slander on us? So we had those conversations, and in order to d- the short answer is no, it was not run by the Naval Academy. In order to do that, there's a whole vetting process, and they have to buy on to buy into everything that's being published. Which, frankly, would have changed the end result. Right. Not because there's anything secret or nasty or bad about the Naval Academy, but in order to have their blessing, um, some words, for example, would have been pulled out because even though they're used, they may not have been um, something that the Navy or the Naval Academy wanted. It would so. have been like a bureaucratic slog. Exactly. To- no, no question about it. And so yeah. we wanted the actual truth about what's going on to be out there rather than the Naval Academy blessed truth. So there's a big sort of disclaimer that says what the lawyers told me it had to say. Right, right, right. uh, There's there's stuff in here that may or may not be approved by the Navy or the Naval Academy, you know, so that was was a fun legal process. What edition is it on now? Uh, So the third edition was the last edition. We were fortunate to have another printing and and now it's sort of gone, it's it's run its course. It was, it first came out in 2004. Uh, but the majority of that information now lives online somewhere, whether on parent sort of blogs or um, friends of the Naval Academy. To and it's much more up to date. It's much more. Mm-hmm. But it was a it was a valuable resource. A lot of parents for about a decade. I would go to induction day, which is the first day where you drop your son or daughter off, and I would sign books. Uh, oh, at cool! The no way. There. And um, I mean, all the same conversations uh, that. It's funny, my wife and I talked about it. Now we have a son who's going to college next year, and I was like, holy moly, we're the same age as those parents who were, who were, we were signing books for and having conversations mm. with the Naval Academy. And they were very generous with their comments. You know, it's just so nice to be able to curl up in, a, in bed with your book and be able to feel connected and feel more knowledgeable because I believe with knowledge there's, there's real power and comfort. Um, about their son or daughter, what they're doing at the academy. So, That's really cool. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I had no idea you were signing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, C- can you sign one for me? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, have, I have no affiliation with the Naval Academy. But <laughs> sure. Can, can you give us the name of the book one more time? Sure. It's called Brief Points, and the subtitle is An Almanac for Parents and Friends of U.S. Naval Academy Midshipmen. All right. Yes. Very cool. I think you're our second published guy, right? Yeah. I think you're probably more legit. Uh, <laughs> I, hope, I hope Dimitri's not listening to this. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, sorry, that was maybe too honest. Okay, so you, when you set foot, you know, uh, at the Naval Academy, you, you already had a, a pilot's license. Like, you already knew how to fly a plane. Um, did that count for anything, or was the Navy like, you know, we're going to beat you down to square one, and we're going to send you to our own flight school? And then part two of that question is... Uh, you knew how to fly planes, but you hadn't learned how to fly helicopters, right, in, in high school. So um, how did you end up going toward the helicopter route as opposed to flying, like, jets, for example? Got it. Great question. So 
Flight school is a little less antagonistic than plebe summer, for example. However, they do want everyone, regardless of your aviation experience, if you came from Alaska and you grew up flying planes uh, back into the bush, um, the Navy wants you to know how to fly the way they teach it. So did the fact that I have a pilot's license help me? Sure. Insofar as in the very first stages, we call them familiarization phases with, or abbreviated FAM, FAM stages, uh, you know, I didn't have to worry about things that some of my peers had to worry about. How do I talk on the radio? How do I land this plane? How do I manage some of the some of the controls? But after, gosh, probably 15 hours or so, I, I would say everyone's on the same playing mm. field. So it really did help in the beginning to get through those um, those early familiarization flights. But after that, and once you shift into the, the instrument phase where you're doing everything through radio instruments, um, everyone's really on a pretty even even keel. Now, that being said, the entire flight school, everything you do from the moment you show up in a brief to the moment you leave and the debrief is graded. And performance matters. And so if you are having a really great flight, um, you may, you know, get a uh, I won't get into the how it's graded, but everything's graded. And mm-hmm. so the first part of flight school is called primary flight training. The um, culmination of all those grades are then compared with your peers, and they rank you, and they go to the number one guy, and they say, Daniel, you're number one. Congratulations. Do you want to fly helicopters, jets, or propeller aircraft, big, large transport aircraft? And those are the three primary categories. And while I was in flight school, I sort of reinforced my love of flying. Um, I went into it thinking I wanted to be a jet pilot, and I was fortunate to have a friend who was in the helicopter training, which happened to be co-located there in Pensacola, who said, man, I'm telling you, helicopter's the way to go. And I said, well, whatever. You just probably are saying that because you couldn't get jets, and I've got jet grades. I want to go be a jet pilot. And he said, dude, just go for a flight in a helicopter and tell me what you think. And so, so jets are harder to, to get into. You need a bit a bit better grades to go to the jet pipeline simply because of what you do landing on an aircraft carrier and a little bit less room for error. It's also a single-seat aircraft, so um, you don't have a multi-crew, uh, someone there to back you up. So that's their rationale to have. You have to have a bit higher grades. But And I, I had jet grades, and so I was able to... F- uh, finesse myself into a position where I could go on a couple helicopter flights and it, it literally changed my world because going 90 knots at treetop level um, is just such a rush and to be there with someone else I'm more of an extrovert than an introvert and to have that multi-crew experience to um, to be able to share what it is that you're doing with someone else really appealed to me. And I really shifted my tack and was fortunate to get when we came to that selection, helicopters. And uh, then the second phase is the advanced phase of, of flight training where they teach you how to fly helicopters. And it, very few people come into the Navy flight school knowing how to fly helicopters. So we're all on the same mm-hmm. playing field by that point. And um, I did well enough to get what I wanted to do, which was the airframe that I wanted, the SH-60 Bravo, uh, the Seahawk, and the location that I wanted, which was out in San Diego. So that's where we left after, that's where we moved to after uh, flight school. Wow. Yeah, we went out to San Diego, my wife and I, before any of us had kids, I think. I think so. Oh, no, Stuart had just been born, I think, maybe. No, he was no, born was back he? in the bo- Yeah, that's right. He was born like a year or two later, I guess. San Diego is gorgeous, man. It's, it's an amazing place, but you had 
maybe 1.4 of a postage stamp right. as, a, as a living space. Right. Out, out on uh, So the base yeah, I flew out of was NAS North Island, which is on uh, Coronado, uh, which is just off of the mainland of San, Di- of San Diego. And it used to be an island, but when they dredged the channel there for the naval base, um, it created a peninsula. And uh, Coronado is a lovely place. It's a wonderful community within the community of larger San Diego. And we had, a, I think, about 1,000 square feet, maybe. And you were paying way too much. <laughs> oh, my it. goodness. It's ridiculous. But, uh, yeah, we loved it. I had a I had an 11-minute uh, bicycle commute to work, so that was great. And uh, that's when I kind of turned into a bike commuter. But um, You rode your bike to fly helicopters. I did. It was <laughs> awesome. So what was a helicopter flying for? Like, like training missions or, I, I mean... Right, so once you get your wings in Pensacola, now they know that you know how to fly, but you don't know how to fly what your naval aircraft is going to be. So the first part of my time in San Diego was to learn my specific aircraft, the 60 Bravo, um, and that was about a, a nine-month process. Um, the 60 Bravo was designed as an anti-submarine uh, aircraft um, to, at the time to, to sort of combat the Soviet primarily the Soviet uh, subsurface threat. Um, so we, we learned those tactics, and then we learned how to uh, fight the aircraft, we say. But as time changed and the wall came down in 89 and, and uh, or sorry, 91, um, we, we, the aircraft, the mission of the aircraft changed, and the 60 Bravo turned, in more of a, turned into more of a kind of jack-of-all-trades. So we did subsurface uh, combative stuff. We did um, anti-surface. We had a couple forward-firing uh, missiles, ordnance that we could use. We uh, we did sort of logistics between this ship and the battle group over to that ship, moving parts and people throughout the battle group. Uh, and then what I ended up doing a majority of my career was uh, counter-narcotics. So we would go uh, in the Caribbean and, and Eastern Pacific, back and forth through the Panama Canal, um, fighting the drug war. Uh, Whoa. I didn't know the Navy was involved. Uh, I guess everybody was involved. It, it seemed, I thought that was more of a Coast Guard uh, domain. So we worked uh, part and parcel with the Coast Guard. We had a Coast Guard law enforcement detachment on board with us, um, and they're just fantastic people, door kickers, uh, who are just love the, love the rush of the fight. We would often fly with uh, Coast Guard snipers on our uh, helicopters so that if we did find a, a drug runner, um, we could, once we had gone through the proper procedures, of course, um, shoot out the engines and cause them to stop and then be able to apprehend a, uh, a bust, which happened more often than, than you might imagine. And uh, some crazy stories about dark and stormy nights uh, doing that, but it was a wonderful Wonderful mission that if, um, and we knew we weren't getting uh, all of the drugs by any stretch, uh, but even the small percentage that we were stopping uh, was enough to intimidate the folks mm. who were running those drugs. Um, Did you ever feel like uh, the, you were in danger, like from the helicopter perspective, or the, was it mostly a one-way kind of... Well, like uh, anti-air, I don't know, bazoo- like RPGs and st- I don't know. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And the car- the cartels are very familiar. And, and again, this is, I'm sure, changed in the time since I've been doing it. But they're very familiar with our rules of engagement. However, um, you know, they almost always are f- are running with weapons, whether it's an RPG or, or um, uh, some type of a machine gun, which would be a bad day. So 
yeah, there's a there's a bit of a pucker factor when you're coming and rolling in on a ship that's running out just east of the Galapagos and there's no one else around and these guys haven't been identified before. Um, so are they going to shoot back? Are they going to... So we'd fly armed, we'd fly packing for bear, and uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's mm. it's a different type of excitement than rolling into a mountaintop in Afghanistan, but it's it's very real, and you still mm. have to be professional and and how you go about it, and know that there's an opportunity for them to retaliate. Particularly if you start putting bullets in front of them, typically people don't right. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so were you uh, intervening in international waters or American waters? We were, right? and that's why we would have to have the Coast Guard at the time. This was pre 9/11. You know, the, on international water, there's all sorts of rules that govern what you can and can't do. And DO, Department of Defense, were limited in what we could do on the open seas. But if it's a law enforcement operation, which is what the Coast Guard was there for, then we could we would have a little bit, a bit more uh, leeway and how we could intervene. So with the Coast Guard on board, we were uh, considered or flagged, if you will, as a law enforcement uh, operation. And uh, that way we could, we still couldn't follow people into uh, domestic waters. So for example, if someone ran into the, uh, into the 12 mile ring around Guatemala, uh, for example, we couldn't follow them in there. So if we had a bust or if we were chasing someone, they knew that they would just have to run into the, and then we, we would have to call off the, the hunt, so to speak. So you talked about uh, a lot of dark and stormy nights. T- tell us one of those stories, if you can, about one of those missions. Sure. A couple good ones. Um, there's really three different ways that the cartels could move narcotics. One is through a semi-submersible, like a, a almost a submarine. They would have a little um, snorkel for primarily for exhaust of the diesel engines. Um, very, very difficult to see on radar and the, the naked eye. Um, the other way was, or a second way, was to have a fishing vessel run the drugs where they would um, operate as a fishing vessel. They would have a fishing crew. They would have nets. They would look for all intents and purposes like a fishing vessel. Um, but then they would have a, one of the fuel tanks removed, and they would hollow that out, and they would pack all the, all the contraband in there. And the third way was what we would refer to as a go-fast, which was sort of imagine a Miami Vice sort of cigarette boat with, you know, four 450s on the back of it. Like they weren't making any appearances? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, they just go. And there's so much on the open ocean with choppy water. There's so much splash. These guys would would be running. The driver would literally have a diving mask and a snorkel on so that he could breathe because there's so much. (laughs) It's just crazy. So we would, and I have... I have stories from all three of those and, and each one of them, you know, most of the guys who are running the drugs don't want to be there. They've been conscripted by the cartels through all kinds of horrible intimidation. Um, so I would feel bad for them if we would actually, uh, find them. But, um, some of the most exciting were the, the go fast chases because these guys would see us and they would know that the gig was up and they don't want to have the gig up because of, their own reasons if they're a cartel guy because they're probably not going to live too much longer if they're one of the conscripts there's probably going to be payback for the their loved ones um so they were really trying their best but uh, to not get caught the um some of the best pictures that i have from the experience didn't involve the go fast but the fishing boats so we would find these fishing boats and we would go through the state department and find there's a known list of these potential boats that are used in this drug trade and 
we'd find one through our sensors and then we go uh, provide air support for the law enforcement guys to go go on board and um it's just really exciting to watch mm. we've got our weapons trained on board in case something goes bad if they detonate the boat or try to be hostile toward the law enforcement guys coming on and and they just literally with uh the proper probable cause um tear that boat apart and find i'm talking tons and tons of uncut narcotics so so with with street values, you know, over a billion dollars, just crazy. Oh. extraordinary. Over a billion back then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, what would be the fate? Uh, you know, if you if you catch one of these conscripts or cartel guys, what's their you know what's the typical fate for them? Uh, do they get sent back? No. So we would apprehend them. We'd put them on board, um, turn an area uh, that was humanitarian of uh, the ship into a sort of makeshift prison and give them, obviously, their food and water that they needed and opportunity to use the restroom. But um, we'd have a representative sample or, or in some cases, the entire contraband that we would uh, collect. And then we'd send them into um, the American DEA mm. and they'd be prosecuted and they're probably out there in a, in a jail somewhere. Right. I don't believe they would be repatriated, but I don't know that mm. for sure. It might not be something that they'd want in any <laughs> exactly. case. Uh, so how but, long... But they, but they also don't get citizenship. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. right. Um, so how long did you uh, do that for? Yeah, so I did a full 20-year career in the Navy and uh, of my deployments... I did one deployment over to the Persian Gulf that was not counter-narcotics as part of a battle group, and um, that was a a different set of stories. Uh, And then the remainder of my deployments were counter-narcotics. So I had, I think in my career, a total of nine ships I was deployed on, and however many days at sea, I don't recall, and um, lots of different guys I flew and flown with. Oh, so these would be, like you would be on a on a boat, like an aircraft carrier out in, in the Galapagos, and you'd fly, you'd make, take missions from it with your helicopter? Correct. So not a carrier. The only time I worked with an aircraft carrier was in the Persian Gulf. But on the counter-drug stuff, I was on a frigate, which is the smallest ship in the U.S. inventory. It's a little bit cramped on board. Uh, but, yes, we would we would take off from the ship, go out and do our missions, and then return to the ship. And, and so how long would a, would a ship um, deployment be? Typically, at the time, about six months. So hard on a young family, hard on a young, uh, young marriage, uh, and a lot of the things that these military families have to do, um, it's just, it's a different set of, doesn't make military families better, but it does make them different. They're, the challenges that they face are very different from a sort of traditional American family. Um, so yeah, it was tough, but it, uh, it's necessary. Too. Yeah. It's amazing. The, the, the spouses, uh, you know, of, of people that, they go through like, and then have to, you know, raise the family and everything. It's, I think that they're some of the strongest people probably. Yeah, absolutely. Around. Absolutely. So when I was at the Naval Academy the second time teaching, uh, I happened to be uh, assistant prof there when um, 9-11 happened. And so I had very recently come from a deploying squadron where I was out doing the job um, on deployment and living that life. We had just had our first son, um, Stuart, and he was he was less than six months old when 9-11 happened. And I started, and I keep hearing these stories from my friends uh, who were still in the deploying side of the house 
their lives are turned upside down. They're being told, um, you're going on deployment. We don't know how long you're going to be gone. So I started looking at this young child that I had and try to figure out, well, if I were still doing that, and I, since I was teaching, I wasn't deploying any, any longer at that time, what would be some of these questions um, that this young man might ask? Hey, Dad, why do you have to go away? And is what you do important? Do you still love me when you're gone? And the most important one, are you ever going to come home? And so I try to sort of fashion those questions and others through the eyes of a child into a some type of a response and it turned out to be mm, kind of I was teaching English at the time English lit and so it turned out to be something of a of a poem and um, I had a foot in the door with the Naval Academy book in in publishing and I, then I started wondering well if I could get this story is what it turned out to be um, to a larger audience perhaps that wouldn't just help my son maybe it would help other families as well so that's how the second book that I got published uh, sort of began. Um, the name of the book is My Sailor Dad, and um, it took a while, but in 2008 that was published, and we, um, we've just been really, really blessed with folks' feedback that it, it has done exactly what we wanted it to do, which is sort of wrap your arms around these military families who sacrifice so much and try to help answer some of those questions that are sometimes difficult to either ask or or be answered um, that I referenced earlier. So it was really uh, a wonderful experience, and um, I ended up following that up with a, a partner book to My Sailor Dad called My Soldier Dad. Very similar questions, but a different audience to uh, primarily a, a ground soldier um, type of family. Mm-hmm. And um, that that book also came out and um, very well received. I was fortunate to win a couple of awards, which was nice. And I, as time progressed, I started wondering, is there a way that we can get these books who, you know, the military is rough average, about 80% enlisted, 20% officer. Our target audience are those young enlisted soldiers and sailors who may not have 15, 20 bucks for a nice kid's book. Um, how can we get it in their hands? Just free. And so uh, I was able to create a, a not nonprofit uh, called the Hero Kids Book Project where we receive donations um, as you would to your church or any other charity and then we're able to buy the books at cost and just distribute them for free. And so Hero Kids has been going since uh, 2014. We've given away thousands of books and uh, it's just a really, it's sort of a passion project but it's a really great opportunity. We have, we currently are using the USO to help us distribute the books and I tell you man, we'll drop off you know, a couple hundred books and in days they're gone and they get all these wonderful feedback that uh, man, these families are so grateful to be able to have that opportunity to sit down and curl up with a physical book mm-hmm. uh, with their kids and have some of those questions answered. Yeah, so. I think I don't I don't think that you'll ever replace that. You know, the, the curling up and the physical book right, with right. like yeah, blogs or something. For <laughs> right, example, right? Did you send uh, Paul's family a signed copy of a uh, Soldier Dad? Better than that, Daniel. I even dedicated the book to Paul and his family. No way. No way. That's right. <laughs> so yes, he definitely has a, a signed copy. His kids are old. All these are all our kids now are. You know, they're not the sort of four to seven year old right. age, but um, 
Yeah, but but when you and I were going uh, places, they were were quite young. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Have you have you read the book, Paul? I've yeah, multiple times. Do you want to, you want to give us a quick uh, book review? It's it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> when did Soldier Dad come out? My Soldier Dad. Soldier Dad was goodness, uh, sixteen, I think. Okay. I have to look. Oh, not too long ago. Yeah, see, I put Daniel on the spot from time to time, so he's just giving me a little nice. Feedback I love right it. Now. <laughs> I love it. It's uh, quite well written. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and I'm I'm obviously no authority on on what it's like to to have to leave in service of your country and have a family back home with a spouse that's you know basically giving up everything. You know, I think you two have a lot more direct experience with that. Yeah, and the navy the navy's changing a bit. The uh, the army and the air force guys, I tell you, as difficult as it is to be gone on a boat in the middle of nowhere for six to, in some cases now eight or nine months, um, these army guys and air force guys who do it for a full year, it's just it must be debilitating. Paul, of course, has lived it in Iraq for a year, and um, to have that amount of time away from the people you love is just can be crippling I think it, it changes you for sure and right. uh, makes the relationships much more sweet when you get back absolutely absolutely put me on the spot like that Daniel I, sorry about that Cam, Cam, Camelami what's going on over oh here? it's I'm, I'm just I'm just chilling I just wanted to hear your voice yeah, yeah. so it's Cameron you are the son of Ross this is true all right and you're you're in 10th grade going, uh, to, going to a rising life. junior yeah. rising junior forgive me yeah um, cool and and what what are you what have you had any thoughts over this conversation? Yeah, I mean I I've been thinking about Navy for a while. I don't know if I could get in, but if that was a possibility, that'd be that'd be cool to follow in Big Man's footsteps. I yeah, mean, that speaks to Big Man, right? Because Stuart, who's off mic right now, uh, is gonna has, he's flying now. He is flying. He he followed. Uh, well, he did it on his own, but he. It, has done something that I did in high school, which is follow his dream to want to fly. And he has, I was fortunate enough to share this day with him uh, just a few weeks ago to go up and, and watch him do his first solo. Uh, so that was a very proud dad moment. And he's off to Middle Tennessee State University to be part of a, a 141 uh, flight training program. So he'll be a, he'll get a bachelor's in aviation science with a specialty as a professional pilot so he'll graduate with a degree and everything he needs from the FAA to go into the commercial aviation world very cool so one son's flying the aviation path and the other one's thinking about the, the navy path. thinking about navy thinking of course that's the podcast opinion you know <laughs> right, exactly. we don't have the opinion off mic yeah right. uh, well and if you do join the navy cameron uh don't do surface warfare it's, it's <laughs> anything else but that that's right <laughs> well one of your one of your earlier guests i think the dad said whatever you do don't pick infantry and <laughs> so he picks infantry that's right so yeah, maybe jackson, cameron will end up being a surface warfare well, i'll still be proud of you cam oh yeah yeah ross is referencing uh twice winter soldier jack stockhausen jack stockhausen right? or well, twice winter ranger sorry yeah right right so uh, I, I, I'd like to get into a little bit of the commercial, uh, you know, career that, that followed your naval career. Um, well, can, before we go there, can we talk about your Persian sure. Gulf experience? And so what you were uh, doing over there, but also uh, shore uh, stops. Sure. What, oh, what, what, that, what that was like as an officer. Absolutely. Responsible for other people. Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, from San Diego, went on a part of a battle group deployment over to the Persian Gulf. This was in 1998. And um, 
on the way over, we had some some lovely stops in Asia. We went to Hong Kong. Uh, this was right before it went back to Chinese rule, so still a tremendous uh, British influence there, which was extraordinary to, to witness. Um, and then uh, we went to Thailand uh, as well and um, saw a lot of that culture as well, which is uh, really part of, you know, join the Navy, see the world. And some, a lot of folks let their hair down in, in uh, these <laughs> various places, which can make a young, a young officer uh, go gray a little bit early. Uh, and then over to the Persian Gulf. When we were there in the Persian Gulf, we were doing support of UN sanctions against Iraq uh, at the time. And when we were there, uh, a guy who no one in, except in the intelligence world um, had heard of before called Osama bin Laden blew up a bunch of American embassies in Africa. And so the ship that I was on was one of four who were kicked out of the Gulf into the Northern Arabian Sea uh, to retaliate to that um, aggression. And so I was on a ship that launched some weapons into training camps in Afghanistan um, under President Clinton's uh, guidance. And that was something that we had never done before. We had something um, that was very, very sort of surreal to be a part of. Um, and then that deployment was extended a bit because of that retaliation and then on the way home again some pretty phenomenal <laughs> port visits uh, in Australia uh, on the way home Perth and then Sydney as well we and, and the reason that these were like such cir circuitous routes to get eventually the Persian Gulf was because you're on a boat the whole time correct yeah you can't just fly to Kuwait and then jump on a boat you'll, you'll air airlift the boat <laughs> exactly <laughs> over the continents yeah, yeah. off the boat in the Gulf right 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 <laughs> Okay. And there were some port visits as well in uh, the Gulf. We were at Dubai, uh, Jabali, and, you know, this is in a time before that area of the world has just exploded with commercial business. And mm -hmm. so it was still sort of a nasty desert port. Um, but because of the aggression in Africa and our, our subsequent retaliation, we really weren't even allowed to leave the pier. So yeah. it was a sort of a lame port visit. Hmm. Yeah, you get to get off the ship, but you can't leave the pier. Oh. <laughs> That's sort of the drag. That's how uh, we were treated when we flew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you cannot leave the plane, but you have to go to this little spot. You right. can't go any farther. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least it's nice for the people to get seasick. <laughs> right. I don't know. That'd be a long <laughs> they, they, they chose the wrong career. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no question. So, so uh, you got to give us one story, no names, obviously, of hair turning gray by uh, young sailors? Oh, gosh. Well, in, um, in Thailand, uh, you know, there's a whole lot that you can get into trouble with, and um, young sailors uh, often often do. So, you know, there you are back at the ship, and Seaman, Seaman Jones is, hasn't come back by curfew, and when Seaman Jones does come back, he's, he's usually under the influence of alcohol, and um, he's got all kinds of reasons to go down to the medical uh, dock and... You know, if he's one of your guys, it's just sort of there you are standing sheepishly in front of your superior officers. Like, why did Seaman Jones go out? I, I don't know, sir. I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> but you worry about him as a as a parent would worry about a a, a kid. Um, you want folks to be prepared to go out and make the right decisions, and, and sometimes they choose to do something else. Right. So. Um, that's a very measured. Uh, that, that, that's as tame as. Uh, <laughs> no, I, li I like it's it. It's out there as he's going to go. I think. <laughs> There's a lot of detail that I'm sure we're not going to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. fine. 
All right, sorry. We can now go to commercial. Yeah, no, no. I'm I'm glad we we went there. I just I wanted to brief it before we went into it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so so it was a 20 year uh, Navy career, and is there something magic about 20 years? Um, did something end, or did you just decide, hey, I, I think I want to look at the commercial space? So at the time, and this is changing, but at the time, in order to get a full retirement from our military, you need to complete a a 20-year career. And what I mean by retirement is uh, essentially akin to a pension, medical benefits, um, et cetera, uh, moving forward. Nowadays, young sailors and soldiers are having something more akin to a 401k where you can put money in as you go. And so then if you do one enlistment or you do your minimum requirement back to Uncle Sam for learning how to fly, for example, you have something to show for that, even though you haven't done the full 20 years. So for me, under that legacy system, um, I wanted to do 20 years so that I could get that, uh, those retirement benefits. And so, yeah, 2014 came around. I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I spent some time uh, getting my nonprofit up and running, which was a real, a real joy. And once that happened, I stepped my toe in the water to um, the contracting world, uh, did that for a few years as a manager, and um, that was also in aviation, but uh, I was a director of training at a small company, and it was fine, not really a good fit. And then I, uh, in the time that I was doing contracting, uh, the commercial aviation world had changed to the degree where you no longer needed to be a fixed-wing pilot to fly in the commercial aviation world. Uh, used to be if you had helicopter rotary time in your aviation logbook, it was sort of like having uh, uh, some awful disease in your medical record. Nobody really wanted to talk to you. Well, that all changed with the shortage of commercial pilots. Um, this is obviously pre-COVID. Um, and so they, uh, a lot of companies started building what they've referred to as rotor transition programs, where we're so hungry for pilots, we know that there are a lot of former military helicopter pilots who fly in the same infrastructure, um, who talk on the same radios, who know all the same regulations. It's just that the wings of the aircraft they flew spun in a circle rather than were fixed. And so I was fortunate to get picked up by one of these road of transition programs from my current company and um, went through a very brief uh, training program and, um, and got hired on. And so I've been with that company now for a couple of years. Uh, it's one of the American Eagle companies called Envoy. And I love it. It's, uh, it's great. It's very, very different from the military. Um, but it is similar insofar as there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of sort of almost like a ready room feel, a uh, squadron feel, if you will. Um, everyone knows the same aircraft. Everyone knows the same rules. You show up, you do your job, and you go home. So there's, mm. uh, it's really appealing. And are these like passenger planes? or uh, Right, yeah, these are passenger planes. So um, I fly the E-175, which is uh, the largest regional jet we have. Um, it sort of looks like a baby 737. Um, wings, or excuse me, uh, engines underneath the wings on either side rather than all the way aft on the fuselage, like some of the smaller regional jets. So, so do you think there's merit to that idea of uh, um, transitioning from fixed wing to rotary wing, like, or sorry, the other way around? Like that, that a lot of that knowledge is transferable, and you can take a lot of helicopter pilots and just basically train them pretty easily to become fixed wing. I, I'm a huge supporter of it, and I, I absolutely think it is, uh, until just a few years ago, a massive untouched resource mm -hmm. um, 
you know, there are more Army helicopter pilots than there are Navy helicopter pilots. Um, the Army has a massive uh, aviation infrastructure. Uh, and when you consider that every helicopter um, has two pilots, I mean, the numbers just go up. Well, what are those folks doing? If you're short pilots, they've all been trained how to fly. They all know the basics of aerodynamics and um, all the regulations that you need to be up in the air. Um, yeah, you just need to train them about jets. And yep. um, things do happen more quickly when you're going 400, 500 knots but, um, than in a, in a helicopter. And you, if, if things start going badly, you can't sort of pull back and hover. So once right. you get over that <laughs> sort of hump, yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great resource. I was fortunate to be able to. I believe in it so much. I was fortunate to throw my hat in the ring and get picked up as one of the recruiters who would help the company that I'm currently working for go out and look for some of these former military guys mm. and gals who who have that experience to come in to help them. That's awesome. Your company is running a business, right? And so oh, absolutely. If you take somebody off the street, it, it costs. I'm making the number up. $50,000, you take somebody who knows how to fly helicopters, it's costing you probably ten, fifteen thousand. No question. And there's time as well. So if, if you come in with that sort of basic knowledge to start with, it's you're in the cockpit much more quickly uh, mm-hmm. flying passengers from point A to point B. Yeah, and, and uh, it's an untapped labor force. And, and I think, you know, we are seeing self-driving trucks and self-driving cars more and more. Uh, but in terms of automation... I gotta, I gotta imagine that you know, flying planes and helicopters is a long way off from being automated. As somebody that works in technology, right, right, it's all well and good to have a drone that's carrying a camera um, up in the air, unpiloted. Whether it's a small drone you can pick up, you know, at the local store, or something like a Predator who's providing, um, you know, imagery for a tactical reason, um, fine. And it's actually safer. It's uh, we're not risking American lives flying that aircraft behind enemy lines to provide us with the intelligence that we require. But as far as carrying human beings, the automation can go a really, really long way. And it's actually, in some cases, more predictable than a human. But what the automation can't do is... Um, make decisions real time. And even if you put a camera in the cockpit and you have an autopilot and you can be able to see, well, that thunderstorm up ahead is not something that we want to go through. It's going to not only risk the passengers, but it's going to be a very uncomfortable ride. The, the automation, at least currently, can't make those decisions, whereas a human being can. And that's what the first officer and the captain do. And, you know, we're running a business as well, and we want people to be as comfortable and, um, mm. and f- safe as possible. And while the automation is great. I agree with you. I don't think in my lifetime we're going to have unpiloted commercial aviation. Maybe in my, my kid's lifetime, I'm not sure. But um, there's a push right now in the cargo aviation world, FedEx, UPS, and others, to shift from a two-pilot cockpit to a single-pilot cockpit, which I think is just a really big mistake. It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, COVID clearly has impacted most of the world. How has it impacted commercial flying? Tremendously. We had a big um, downturn in our passengers for about six to eight weeks. I was flying, um, in a couple of cases, empty airplanes, and in many cases, very uh, close to empty airplanes, a dozen people or less on an aircraft that can carry 76 Um really weird 
really weird. I told the flight attendants on one flight that was empty, had no passengers. It was a pilot to the flight attendants. I said, man, we should have brought a Frisbee. We could have, you guys could have been having fun in the back with, <laughs> with a Frisbee. Back Basketball hoop or right, something. Exactly. Yeah. Do something to pass the time. Um, but now that has come back, the passengers, of course, we have fewer flights now. But um, so those those flights are more full. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's impacted us dramatically. And I think the ramifications are going to be really wicked following 9-11, of course, for very different reasons, security, safety, um, the the knowledge that we can fly these machines safely and we're not going to, we're doing everything we can to prevent future terrorist attacks. It was a decade. And in the aviation world, we refer to it as a lost decade of people weren't hiring, airlines weren't hiring. It was sort of like um, musical chairs and the music stopped for 10 years. Yeah. What's unfortunate is we're trying to, in this industry, the aviation, commercial aviation industry, figure out how long it's going to last. And some people are saying it has a very 9-11 feel to it. Of course, the reasons are very different, but mm-hmm. there still is the notion of we have to try our level best to convince our passengers that it is safe to fly and they're not going to get sick. And they still need to do their part in getting our economy back in, up and running and whether it's traveling for your business or traveling to go see grandma in Omaha um, these are necessary things and we want to do our best to get you there safely and um, you know that the numbers are starting to come back hopefully we won't don't have the second wave but it's mm-hmm. starting to indicate that we're maybe over the hump but it's, we're just going to have to wait and see I think a lot of the airline world are going to be hurting once the government subsidies run out in the fall mm-hmm. so that's going to be a big indicator to see which companies are furloughing which companies are um, you know letting people go right um, so uh, you turned 49 yesterday I did I, we got to enjoy uh, your favorite meal which happy is, birthday well, <laughs> thank you your favorite meal has a lot of things that I really enjoy so it's always good to celebrate your birthday that's right uh, so you're going to work 10, 12, 15 more years? What, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so in the aviation world, you can't work past your 65th birthday. So I got a few more years to give, um, which as long as I'm having fun and uh, doing what I enjoy, I, I would love to do that. If uh, if it gets to a point where it's too hard for some reason or there's a medical issue, obviously, I'd hang it up before then. But, um, yeah, I'd love to continue to fly. It's it's a, I learned when I got into the commercial aviation world from someone who I really trust, uh, he said, you know, this is the easiest job provided you don't do something um, dumb, dishonest, or dangerous. Know your procedures, know the aircraft, know the systems, show up, get your people from point A to point B, and don't do anything dumb, don't do anything dishonest, and don't do anything um, that can jeopardize your career moving forward. So it's, uh, I love it. I think those are rules you can apply to a lot of endeavors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's true. It's, it's an easy job if you, if you do all the hard stuff right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is true. Uh, so I think we'd be remiss if you didn't tell us a little bit about your uh, your bride. Right. So I am uh, married to your uh, little sister. Uh, we have been married now 25 years. We celebrated our 25th anniversary last fall whenever it was a lovely holiday to, uh, to Ireland. Um, it's been every day has been um, sunshine and butterflies. There's been no bumps in the road. <laughs> I, 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 I personally know that's not true. <laughs> no, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to share uh, life with her. And we, um, we have had plenty of, of bumps in the road. 
uh, to say otherwise would be just abjectly false. Um, but we've been able to work through it through a lot of um, forgiveness and sacrifice. And um, these two young men sitting here have made all the difference and made it really worthwhile. So uh, very, very fortunate. Love her, love her dearly. Your, uh, your sons obviously call her mom. Uh, what do you call her? Uh, well, Paul, I have you to thank for that. <laughs> so my wife was uh, born the third generation Elizabeth, and the man I'm talking to, Paul Gilman, had a little challenge with the word Elizabeth. At the, he, at the age of almost three. He pronounced it a wubba buff, and he'll be the first to tell you that everyone laughed at him, and he really didn't like that. So he said, hey, at the age of three, I'm not calling her a wubba buff. I'm going to call her buff. And that stuck, and she became buff which merged into Buffy, and she's been Buffy in her family ever since. Um, so I call her Buffy. Yeah. And um, she's had a couple of different careers, and some of those she's tried to rekindle her, uh, her, her birth name of Elizabeth, and it's just weird to me to call her Elizabeth. <laughs> I feel like I'm cheating on her. I'm like, who is this Elizabeth person? <laughs> it's a lot of syllables, too. Yeah, exactly. There's a it's lot weird. going on there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's... Uh, we know it's hard, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Even now. <laughs> Even now at my advanced stage. Yeah, the buff, the buff. So uh, awesome. you think you're ever going to write again, or are you writing now? Uh, I have a couple other projects that are out there, but um, the... The Sailor Dad, Soldier Dad project is, um, I think, complete. I, I really have, I don't have the Airman Dad or the redheaded um, pilot mom book. It's funny, some of the feedback that I get um, has been, well, I'm an I'm a Air Force person. Can, I, can you please have an Air Force mom book? And I think there's, a, there, there's now in the post 9-11 world sort of a small universe of these books that can help military families and I don't need to have my books be all things to all people and I never set out to do that but I also want to come from a place where you in writing you, you tend to write what you know you do that better if you uh, if you stick within your swim lane and mm -hmm. um, there's plenty of unbelievably talented women out there who can write the sailor mom soldier mom uh, books so I do have a couple other projects, but it's uh, probably not in that vein. Um, I've been doing some, some more, uh, a bit more education, some of these uh, online courses, which I've become a huge fan of. So that's been filling up a lot of my time right now. So uh, not on the writing side. You know, <laughs> online courses and and uh, and things related to flying. No, no. So I just took, I just finished a course, a Yale course uh, called the Science of Well-Being. Uh, which is a, a free online course. Uh, you can pay a little bit of money if you want to sign up to do the extra project or the final project there at the end, which I did. But it's just brilliant, uh, sort of using scientific data to analyze um, happiness and well-being and some of the things that we think will make us happy, a good job, a great body, uh, a lot of money, um, fancy things actually aren't, according to the data, the things that really make us happy mm -hmm. and the course gets into the weeds of well what are those things and how can we how can we sort of retrain ourselves to want the things that do affect our happiness in a positive way our well-being in a positive way rather than the things that our mind tells us that we want which aren't the right things hmm. can you share one thing that could sure. universally make folks happy sure um kindness there's a amazing study that Lori santos is the prof uh who sort of has culled together all these all these different studies and all these data, um, and and a kindness uh, study where just by simply 
being kind, whether it's financial or, or um, verbal, not only increases the other person's happiness dramatically, but it dramatically increases your own happiness as well. If I have $5 and I give that $5 to you, you think that you've, or I guess, sorry, in the study, it was a $5 Starbucks card. So um, you think you've won the lottery. Holy moly, I got $5 to spend at Starbucks. Are you kidding me? This is great. So that person feels unbelievably satisfied, happy, lucky, all of those things rolled into one. But what's funny is not just on that day, but weeks, days and weeks after, the person who has given the $5 gift card away has lingering, increased, and improved uh, happiness. And I think that's, a, that's something that intuitively, maybe if you think about it, we know. But it's just so reassuring to have the data to back that mm. up. Um, and it can be tough to make that initial leap. Like, I think that I'm, I'm kind of a thrifty guy. And I'm like, I'm not going to spend five bucks if it's not, like, worth it, right? And uh, not to say that people aren't worth it. But basically, eventually, I have this friend who I watch on this uh, website called Twitch. He plays video games. And, like, that's his thing. He just streams uh, himself playing video games. And you can subscribe to these people by paying $5 a month. Um, and for the longest time, I was like, why would you do that? Like, why would you give away $5? And then finally, I, I, I like, just out on a whim, you know, gave him $5. And I've been giving him $5 ever since, a month. And, it's, and it feels amazing. You're right. Like, I just feel so good being like, hey, I'm just supporting my buddy uh, doing his thing. So I think that, you know... There might, there might be a, a glitch or some people can get hitched up on, on the initial act of like generosity, especially if they're thrifty like me. Right. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Anything else, Cammy? Should we ask the, uh, Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. On, I forgot. Paul. It's my question too. Yeah. Did you, you know, this is coming maybe it's uh, a standard question. Go for it. I mean, I think we know the answer, which is probably why we I, do. I was going to blow by it. But it's kind of a mat. We kind of have. He to might do surprise it. us. Yeah, you never know. Uh, all right, so Ross, you're 25. You're not married. You don't have kids. You only have to take care of yourself. Wow. Okay. You have a couple of opportunities. Cammy, you can answer this question too if you'd like. <laughs> do you uh, join the military for four years? I'm talking to a guy who was in the Navy for 20 years, uh, or do you do six months of stand-up comedy in front of strangers? Delivering once a week, writing your own material. Absolutely, the military. <laughs> I think one of the most difficult jobs out there is to be a stand-up comedian. Um, one of my good friends growing up was a guy called Patrick Henry, whose older brother is Michael Henry, who has started off as a stand-up comedian. and He does a lot of voices. Now he's just got an amazing career yep. um, with voice work on The Cleveland Show and Family Guy and others. And, um, man, just to just to know a little bit about that world and to know how hard it is. Um, no way I could do that. I, I cherish my own sense of humor. It's not better or worse than the next guys, but man, to try to try to make people laugh by things that you say and be paid for and it. it doesn't work. It's, it's, it's rough. rough. That is absolutely rough. And the point that actually really got to me, somebody that we had on recently made it is, uh, how individual it is. Like you're on your own. And you're making your jokes and you can't steal anybody else's jokes. And everyone, they might look at you and like smile and, and kind of pretend like they want the best for you. But you're really in competition with almost everybody in that world. Whereas like the military, you're, you're stepping into a team off the bat. Yep. And, you know, like you were saying, you're an extrovert and you like having that co-pilot. I think it really fits sort of team player personalities more, the military. Uh, 
Whereas stand-up comedy, you, you just have to be so confident and ready to to deal with ruthless competition. So, cool. Well, yeah. Cam, Cammy is on the fourth mic. Cam, what's your uh, answer to that question as a sixteen-year-old? Yeah, I mean, well, think of how annoying it is when someone's like, "Dude, this guy's so funny. Say something funny, Cam," and you're like, "Ha!" ha, ha. <laughs> and like, imagine that being your job. Like that would that would suck. suck. Yeah. So I mean, sounds hard. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm already thinking about. Maybe, maybe. maybe. So, all right, right on. <laughs> there you go. I don't think we were surprised by your answer, yeah. but we enjoyed the way you described your answer. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Ross, this has been fun, man. Glad we could do this. We are uh, at a beautiful place uh, having a good conversation. I'm glad we could lay this down for posterity. It's my way of kind of returning the favor for you, uh, dedicating uh, my soldier dead. So, well, thank you for having me. What a lovely awesome. setting. You guys have a great, a great gig going, so keep it up. All right. Thanks, Appreciate Ross. It. Thanks, babe. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.